So who would you take first in a draft? Roy Hobbs? Clue Haywood? Maybe Nuke Lelouch? We'll talk about Hollywood baseball and more with Mike Gianella next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 2nd. It's show number 21 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll be talking with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus and the Flags Fly Forever podcast about the fantasy value of baseball movie characters, why trading just doesn't happen as much anymore, not even in experts' leagues, successful soft tossers, managing players who really help in some categories but hurt in others, some thumbs-up and thumbs-down players, and more. We'll have player news with Jock Thompson doing double duty, covering the National League and looking at Bryce Harper, Vince Velasquez, the Dodgers' ongoing DL shenanigans, and more. And he'll look at the American League. Mike Trout, David Price, the suddenly reeling Astros rotation, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on Toronto shortstop prospect Bo Bichette. In our playing time commentary, Baseball HQ's Ryan Bloomfield looks at possible closer changes in Pittsburgh and Miami. In our frequent flyers commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at two chances, Baltimore catcher Chance Sisko and Yankees starter Chance Adams. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Carlos Carrasco, Erasmo Ramirez, and other pitchers going this weekend. And in Masternotes, I'll be talking about coping with Major League Baseball's injury plague. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's our own little field of dreams. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Harold Nichols is taking the week off to cavort with some of his grandkids, so we'll combine the National League report and the American League report. And here with all the info is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show, and thanks for taking on the double duty this week. Do you follow the National League closely? Yeah, I mean, it, it may not seem like it, because I'm always on the AL beat here, but uh, we have, uh, I mean, my main... Fantasy leagues are both uh, very deep, mixed, 20-team leagues, uh, so I kind of have to. Um, and, of course, I do the NL West uh, playing time today at uh, Baseball HQ for the Dodgers and San Diego Padres. So, yeah, i got to stay on top of it as best I can. And plus, uh, as the Director of News and Analysis, I imagine you're looking at pretty much everything. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's, uh, it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. Let's get started with some pitching mound pugilism. I imagine everybody who doesn't live in a Mongolian yurt has seen the footage of Bryce Harper charging Giants pitcher Hunter Strickland. A little bit of a melee followed. Uh, before we discuss Harper's lost playing time, what did you think of the incident in general? You know what, I, I briefly watched it. Uh, that stuff never resonates with me for some reason. Uh, uh, I read a little bit about it too. Um, you know, it's usually two guys acting like jerks and it just doesn't. It re- it's, it's really not the thing that floats my boat, so uh, 
hopefully they'll get over it quickly. Were you surprised at all, as I was, by the number of analysts, especially former players, who said that they thought that Harper was in the right and that he did what he had to do, is what I kept hearing. He had to do something, you know, and uh, I, I wonder about that sometimes. Is it is it such is it the case that because you have a, a perceived injustice aimed at you that you take matters into your own hands? I don't know that that's the right message to send. I'm not sure, though. Yeah, I don't know either, and I'm, and I'm not sure how much of that was the fact that uh, maybe the players really don't like Hunter Strickland. I mean, Buster Posey's reaction to the whole thing suggests that uh, he's not a particular fan of Strickland. Yeah, I got the impression of that as well. Major League Baseball has reduced Bryce Harper's original four-game suspension to three. Is there any playable effect on the Nats lineup? Um, you know, probably, you know, I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. I mean, Harper's going to return on Sunday. The Nationals are carrying just three true outfielders on their roster in work, uh, Michael Taylor and, uh, and Brian Goodwin. Um, and, and interestingly enough, I guess Dusty Baker is thinking about starting Adam Lynn uh, in the outfield uh, sometime this weekend. Uh, he's played a few games there in his major league careers, uh, 225 for, for that matter, but his last outfield appearance was uh, in 2010 in Toronto. So um, I don't think they have a lot of quality depth behind uh, behind Brian Harper and uh, and these first names that I mentioned. Yeah, it looks like uh, they're they're going to be uh, going with that Worth Taylor Goodwin combination uh, for the next couple of days until Bryce Harper gets back. I hope there's no incidents when Bryce Harper does get back. Uh, that would be a, a a bad follow up. In, in the benches clearing melee slash dance party after the main event, someone did get hurt. San Francisco outfielder Mike Morris apparently bonked heads with teammate Jeff Samarja, and as befits a former standout football star, Samarja didn't get hurt. But Morris got a seven-day vacation on the concussion DL. I guess he was seeing stars. Yeah, yes, it sure sounds like it. Uh, I'm not sure that's Morris's loss uh, is uh, is going to be that big a deal. He hasn't played a lot. He's well past his prime. He's mostly pinch hitting. I think what he's hitting a little under 200 with a couple of extra base hits. He's not the, the Mike Morris that was good for about a year and a half uh, there. Uh, the Giants also recalled a utility man, uh, Kelly Tomlinson. He'll be a defensive sub, maybe a pinch hitter. Doesn't have a lot of pop. Um, interestingly enough, they, they also made a, uh, a late activation uh, last night. They brought up the contract of Austin Slater, who's been playing in Sacramento. They cleared room on the 40-man roster for him. This is a guy who, uh, say what you will about hitting 300 in the Pacific Coast League, He's hit 300 everywhere he's gone. He's shown a little bit of power. He's shown a little bit of patience. Uh, he's not an all-star, but I, I think he could contribute. He may get some opportunity in San Francisco. If he does, I like him uh, better than I like Tomlinson in National League only. I could see looking at Tomlinson if you had a roster slot to fill because as a pinch runner, maybe a guy who plays a little bit in late innings, gets on base occasionally, he can run. He's 12 for 17 in parts of three seasons at the major league level. Could get some stolen base opportunities, maybe pick you up you know, three or four bags. And sometimes three or four bags will get you a point. But uh, of the two, I like Austin Slater a lot more as well. Uh, staying in San Francisco, last year's breakout sensation, Eduardo Nunez, is reportedly having some lingering problems with his vision. He took a knock to the coconut while sliding headfirst into home on Sunday. Rob Carroll of BaseballHQ.com has been covering all this stuff on top of this story as well. What's up with Eduardo Nunez? Yeah, these things are always a little tough. He uh, apparently felt some lingering effects on Monday after the... Uh 
the incident in Sunday's game. He was out of the lineup. Uh, he's back on Tuesday, and he played uh, Wednesday. Uh, he's been two for nine since a couple of runs scored. It's probably going to be okay, but this is probably something to keep an eye on in terms of his overall performance. You know, Jock, when I read about this story, the thing that popped into my mind is he's really the only guy in San Francisco who's running at all, and he's 13 for 15 in stolen bases, which makes him a pretty valuable guy in most fantasy formats. But don't you wonder if he might be scaling back on his stolen base attempts considering the possible adverse effects of sliding into a close play at second base? I mean, remember Justin Morneau took a knee to the head uh, five years ago, and he never got over it, and now Eduardo Nunez must be thinking he's got to be a little more careful out there. Yeah, you know, it's hard to, it's, obviously it's hard to analyze a player's psyche. I don't know that much about Nunez in terms of the type of uh, person he is. This is a giant offense that, that's really pretty awful, and I think Nunez's uh, running game is a pretty integral part of the few runs they do score. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens going forward with that. And I'm not tr- trying to suggest that he's going to be frightened or anything. I'm just wondering if maybe somebody on the team might tell him, look, you've got to take it a little easy until your head clears because, uh, you know, sliding head first causes problems. We know uh, all about that. Uh, we'll be talking about Mike Trout in a few minutes on the American League side. Another case of a guy sliding head first and hurting himself. I wonder if maybe Nunez's people will say, look, you know, you got to take it easy. Off to Philadelphia, Jock, right-handed starter Vince Velasquez has been placed on the 10-day DL. They're calling it a right flexor strain, but that's often a precursor to elbow problems, and it's never a good sign. Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. So first, Jock, what clues do we have as to how serious this injury might be? Well, Velasquez himself says the injury is mild, but obviously we can't trust the player's self-diagnosis. Still, um, early on, we haven't reduced his projected innings uh, very much, uh, at least not for now. Interesting thing here, he was always viewed as an injury risk by the Astros. We heard those those thoughts and those opinions. When they traded him to Philadelphia, they were all over the place. I've always avoided him a little bit of that, a, a little bit, just because of that. And he spent some time on the DL, and it seems to be coming to fruition. Haven't you also been wondering if Velasquez might have been playing already with some sort of injury? He's had a terrible start, 550-something ERA, a whip around one and a half. It's definitely not what we were expecting for Velasquez as he seems to have gathered up some major league experience. We should have been seeing something better now, and instead he seems to be sliding back. So could this be a hidden injury? Yeah, it's been a struggle this year for Velasquez. Uh, although, if you look at his skills, they've been better than, than, than his numbers have. The expected ERA is... Uh, is just a little over four, a run and a half better than the actual. Dominance is still uh, around uh, nine and a half strikeouts per nine innings, uh, which is pretty good. It's down from last year. Control is a little bit of a red flag, but uh, you know, still not awful at 3.8 strikeouts per nine for a strikeout pitcher. But uh, again, it's heading in the wrong direction from three. I'm sorry, three three walks per nine uh, from from three walks per nine last season. Uh, on the other hand, his performance is starting to deteriorate just a little bit, and these are the types of things, these injuries can take a long time to burst into fruition, it seems. Well, I was going to say, Jock, the skills numbers that you mentioned do sound okay and somewhat promising, but when you mention strikeouts are down and walks are up, this is not a real good trend for a starting pitcher. No, it's not. Uh, fewer Ks, more walks, got a decline in command. Um, last year, uh, he had a, a 3.4 command. That strikeouts to walks ratio. What we use at Baseball HQ this year, it's 
It's under the uh, HQ standard of 2.7. And we know that control problems have been linked to elbow problems. It's another worrying sign in his first 10 starts. He has four PQS disaster scores of 0 or 1, and his best PQS score, score is a modest 3. He hasn't been dominant at all this year, frankly. I think that this all t- sort of sums up to indicate a pitcher in whom we have to be a little worried and maybe a little cautious about adding him or making any deal for him. And if you have him on your roster, maybe not expecting too much. That PQS information, I think, is particularly interesting because uh, Velasquez is supposed to have the kind of stuff that does make him a dominant pitcher in games. And he's had, as you said, 10 outings and not one dominant start. And all those uh, disastrous starts of zeros and ones. All these signs seem to point to a bad outcome. Yeah, um, this is a guy, it's like you said, the trend isn't going in the right direction. He's been more and more inconsistent. Uh, He's not a guy that I would trust. Well, then how do the Phillies replace Velasquez? At least uh, first let's start with the roster slot. Well, roster-wise, they called up right-hander uh, Ricardo Pinto to take his spot. Um, he's a he's a career reliever. He's not going to start. He was recently converted uh, to uh, to relief. Um, the, the Phillies are hoping his above-average fastball and changeup will be more effective in uh, in short shorter outings. He doesn't have a true breaking pitch, um, so he's going to be a low strikeout guy. Um, however, uh, our our baseball HQ scout, Jeremy Deloney, um, thinks that Pinot's dominance could increase in relief. Yeah, Jeremy was the uh, scout who covered Pinto in the Daily Call-Up report a little earlier this week. And, uh, of course, as a sort of not high-leverage relief guy, he's probably not of too much interest to anybody in fantasy baseball. But somebody's got to get Velasquez's rotation innings, uh, Jock. Who might that be? Yeah, Nick Pavetta is one one thought. He's had four starts this year. He hasn't been really rosterable. He's posted a 5.96 ERA, a 1.75 WHIP, uh, 5.01 expected ERA, over four walks a game, uh, less than six strikeouts a game. Um, they've got some other names too. Um, um, obviously, they've got uh, Mark Appel. He's had ten starts at AAA. He's been a big disappointment. They've got Ben uh, Lively. Most of the Phillies' best names uh, aren't particularly MLB-ready, in my opinion. Uh, they're mostly down in high A and low A. So uh, Phillies got a tough road ahead of them. Might be one of those situations where you look carefully to see who gets that rotation slot and avoid him anyway because, like you said, they're just simply not all that good. Uh, in Los Angeles, your neck of the woods, Jock, they put, uh, the Dodgers put left-handed starter Alex Wood on the 10-day DL. He's got some shoulder inflammation, or so they say. It was covered at Baseball HQ Playing Time today by uh, Jock Thomason, is it? Jack Thompson? Anyway, many people have noticed the Dodgers playing shenanigans with the 10-day DL using it to rotate pitchers in and out of the lineup. Are they doing this again? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, it looks like Wood is just going to be shelled for one start. Uh, the Dodgers always uh, keep me hopping. Uh, they're always have, they always have somebody going on the DL and somebody coming off. So it's a way to rest a fragile staff. They have a lot of depth, and they're probably doing it more and, and, and I think better than, than most other teams. What are the playing time effects of this latest move? Well, it was interesting. Uh, Hyunjin Ryu um, jumped back into the rotation a couple of days ago, and he had his best start of the year uh, against St. Louis. He tossed six innings, one run, uh, one run ball. Um, they were actually looking at Ryu, Ryu for a long relief role uh, before that. Uh, uh, 
Um, his ERA this year is 3.91, uh, 1.39 whip. Not great. Dominance is 8.2. His velocity actually jumped up this last game. So uh, it, it's hard to tell with a guy like that. He's effectively been out now for a couple of years since, uh, since being hurt, hurting his arm. Um, maybe he's coming back. Uh, there's always the risk that he re-injures himself. Um, but, um, you know, he's on a pretty good L.A. club, and uh, when he pitches, he seems to do okay. So um, he's going to be one of those guys that goes in and out, I think. Just two wins and five losses. I know we don't really look at wins and losses as an indicator of skill, but this is a pretty good team, as you said, and just two wins in that in eight starts. Uh, I don't know. It probably means he's going short, doesn't get into deep enough into games to get the, the big strikeout totals. I don't know. I, I suppose, again, if you were sitting in a National League-only format and you had an injury replacement that you needed, you could do worse, but I think generally you could do better. Now, of course, uh, Julio Arias is the big name in the sort of waiting list starters in the Dodger organization. Any chance they recall him from AAA? No, probably not yet. Uh, this is a pretty valuable property. He was really struggling with his control uh, with the Dodgers. And in fact, in the in AAA, before the Dodgers brought him up uh, uh, this year, um, his control in the minors right now is still five walks per nine. Uh, he, he wasn't striking out that many hitters anymore. And they're trying to put a cap on his on his. Uh, on his innings, as long as they don't need him, they're going to keep him down in the minors, honing his skills. They're, they're like I said, they're trying to limit his innings. They want him for the postseason. I noticed the Dodgers also recalled Brandon Morrow, and I remember him as a starter full time in Toronto back in the early 2010s. I think around 2010 through 13 or 14. Uh, any chance Brandon Morrow fits into the rotation? Yeah, I think Morrow's uh, full-time starting days are, are long gone. Uh, he did that in Toronto, obviously, uh, uh, back uh, for five years between 2010 and 2014, I think. He, he posted a 4.32 ERA with a very good dominance on 9.5 per nine. Uh, but he's had a lot of inning or a lot of injuries uh, since then. Um, I think he's probably more of a matchup reliever now and probably on the Dodger shuttle. They've got a very deep bullpen as well. Uh, he did pretty well in his first inning. Um, small sample, obviously, struck out a batter, no hits or walks. A pretty good 17 to 4 um, strikeout to walk ratio in 17 innings at AAA Oklahoma City. Uh, ERA wasn't good, but again, it's the Pacific Coast League. Like I said, the Dodgers have a pretty deep uh, pen. Uh, even if he pitches well, uh, I think he's going to be going back and forth for a while. So we didn't really change his playing time projection for now. Okay, Jock, great information from the National League, and thanks again for filling in for Nick Nichols. Let's move on to your regular bailiwick in the American League, and starting with maybe the biggest news in fantasy baseball in a few seasons, Mike Trout is out of the game. On the DL, at least through the All-Star break, undergoing surgery for a torn ligament in his thumb. And as I mentioned earlier, that was caused by a hard head-first slide into second. At the same time, Cam Mabin is also on the 10-day DL with a sore oblique. So there's a lot of uh, at-bats and innings to fill in the outfield in Los Angeles. Going to be a lot of movement there, I suspect. Uh, you're you're an Angels guy. Give us the thumbnail of where they are right now and where they're going. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think the take from most of us paying attention to the Angels uh, is that everyone's about to find out just how really valuable Mike Trout is to an otherwise pretty awful team, how truly bad the Angels are without him. Uh, anecdotally, these last couple of games, a uh, couple of nights against two really bad pitching staffs in uh, Atlanta and Minnesota, they scored two runs each night. Uh, Really doesn't help that Mabin is also out, particularly on defense, uh, although this is 
expect it to be a short DL stint. Sosha likes his defense and handedness, so for now they're going to mix and match uh, with Trout and Maven out, depending on the opposing pitcher and the situation as best as possible. Last night they had Shane Robinson in center field against the lefty, primarily for defense, and he actually had a pretty good game out there. Um, but he's got a, a, a two twenty seven career batting average, so uh, he's not going to be in there that often. I, I think Ben Revere and Eric Young are both going to get a lot of at-bats while Maven is out with uh, whoever uh, whoever getting hot uh, who, or who can produce uh, staying in the lineup once Maven returns. Now, Young can swipe a base. He's already swiped a couple in the three games that he's played. The uh, problem is he can't steal first base, and his, he's only he only has a two forty something career batting average, which is why he's he hasn't been in the majors for a couple of years now. And at the corners, Yunel uh, Escobar is finally back from the DL. How does that affect the Angels' situation? Well, Escobar hit fourth uh, last night, which kind of a typical social move, and it amplifies what I said about the dire straits the Angels are in. He's going to get most of the third base time. Balbuena moves over to first base against right-handed pitchers. I also expect the to call C.J. Crone pretty soon and demote Jeffrey Marte, whose error opened up the floodgates last night late in the ninth inning, and who isn't nearly the defensive option that Crone uh, is over at first base. Crone started to hit at AAA, and I think that was the objective. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him back in, uh, in Orange County soon. Some better news for the Indians, and they certainly could use it. Corey Kluber, their ace, returned on Thursday from the DL. He dominated the Oakland uh, uh, Athletics. Not that hard to do, unfortunately, so it's not that great a sign. But six innings, no runs, ten strikeouts in six innings is really good. And that staff needed some support. Uh, Amazingly enough, the Cleveland rotation was easily the best in the American League last year. But this year, not at all. Uh, Tom Kephart covered Kluber's return and playing time today. Let's talk about the Cleveland rotation and how it's stands up now that Kluber's back. Yeah, it's kind of stunning, isn't it? Uh, I didn't realize this until uh, maybe about two, three weeks ago. Obviously, Cleveland's rotation is what brought them to the to the World Series against the Cubs last year. This year, they have the AL's worst rotation ERA-wise at 4.70. It's even worse right now than Baltimore and Detroit, which isn't what anyone expected. Uh, Ironically, the bullpen has been the best in baseball with 2.12 ERA, which is what's helped them get by so far. But they're definitely going to need Kluber going forward. Uh, and his slide start's been part of the problem, uh, 4.36 ERA now after Tuesday's start. And uh, this DL stint, uh, they're, they're, they obviously are, are glad to have him back. Uh, I, I think he's going to be okay going forward. But the uh, rest of the rotation, uh, maybe not so much. Whose rotation spot is Kluber taking, and what else is Cleveland going to do to try to right this particular ship? Well, Danny Salazar has been the big problem. Uh, he's been bounced from the rotation uh, with, with Kluber's return. The walks and home runs have, have just been horrendous for him. Uh, Josh Tomlin hasn't been much better. They've decided to let him stay in the lineup or in the rotation for now. Both have ERA is well over five. Um, Effectively, Mike Clevenger has taken over Salazar's spot. We talked about him recently. Um, Clevenger has always been a little intriguing. He's got good strikeouts, and he's doing it again. And he's pitched better than he has. Uh, he's he's pitched better in his in his last three starts than he has in in recent recent rotation auditions he's had with Cleveland. But the situation here remains fluid, and he still walks too many hitters. Um, Trevor Bauer is another guy who's actually been. Pretty bad ERA-wise, although most of his problems appear to be a, a product of bad luck. This is going to be a fluid situation in Cleveland. Whoever pitches well is is going to get uh, the starts.
Jock, I've been seeing in quite a few places online, some analysts really like Trevor Bauer for the rest of the season based on that bad luck that you were talking about. And he's had terrific last four starts. He's 3-0. and He's thrown 24 innings with 36 strikeouts. That's 13.5 strikeouts per nine. He's only walked four guys in that same period. And this is all good success despite a 36% hit rate. So he's been unlucky still but he's having such great skills that it's actually working uh, trevor bauer might be a guy to look at in your league uh, moving on david price finally made his 2017 debut he looked pretty sharp yeah he wasn't bad uh, he only gave up two hits he gave up a home run and, and three earned runs but five innings three runs he four strikeouts uh his uh, velocity was up 94 his uh, swinging strikes were good um Boston had really been limping along in that number five spot since Stephen Wright's season ended surgery, and even even while Wright was pitching because he wasn't very good, um, and they avoided that spot whenever there was an off day. So they're they're glad to get Price back. They had been going with Kyle Kendrick, uh, Hector Velasquez as well. Uh, what about Brian Johnson? He's been very impressive the last couple of times out. Yeah, that was the the one interesting thing about Price being out. This was a this was a rotation that was looking for depth, and they may have found that in Johnson. Uh, particularly that last game, uh, he pitched a nine-inning shutout that was very impressive uh, just last week. When they need another rotation arm, Johnson right now has a big leg up if he can keep it going at AAA Pawtucket. When Boston needs another arm, he has a leg up. That that works re- really well for him. Now, I was listening to that second game that you mentioned on uh, SiriusXM, or maybe MLB, I can't remember, but I listened to it on the radio, and they were talking about Johnson's pitching, and he didn't seem to be bringing a lot of velocity. It seemed like he was mixing them up and keeping them off off uh, off kilter, getting their timing wrecked by mixing in sort of 89, 90-mile-an-hour fastballs with pretty effective off-speed stuff. Can that kind of approach last long enough to make Brian Johnson a worthwhile addition to a fantasy roster? Well, again, he's your, he's your prototypical back-of-the-rotation guy. Like you said, he doesn't have dominant stuff. He, he uses command. Um, he, a couple of years ago, people really loved him uh, as one of those back-of-the-rotation guys that could actually make it. And then he, he went through some problems. He had, uh, he had some, um, some, some issues, and he, he actually thought about retiring from baseball, I think, uh, at that point. But uh, he's back. Uh, he seems to be back in the groove. Um, not a lot of upside here, but uh, perhaps there's a floor, and perhaps he can make it as a number four, number five. That was a pretty impressive alley. Eduardo Rodriguez, of course, has been terrific for Boston, a 350-some ERA, a 115 whip, and nearly 10 strikeouts per nine, which is very dominant. Uh, Kansas City has been a real disappointment across the board this year, and now they've lost two starting pitchers, Danny Duffy, who was their ace and was piling up strikeouts like nobody's business, and Nate Carnes, whom they acquired in trade. Could there be a silver lining here in the rookie Eric Scogland, Jock? It was a pretty nifty spot start he made in his debut against Detroit, six innings, no runs. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe, yeah, I'd, I'd take this flyer, particularly this season with pitching being what it is. Again, we're talking about another back-of-the-rotation guy, and his 4.40 ERA at AAA doesn't look particularly appealing. But, but again, it was the, the hitter-friendly Pacific Coast League, and he also posted a 41-13 to strikeout-to-walk ratio over 47 innings, which speaks to his command and pitchability. I watched the start, and I, I watched him move the ball in and out all over the zone against the Tigers. I thought he looked terrific. He only gave up two hits and one walk in six innings. He's going to get opportunity, and particularly in a home run suppressing park like Kauffman Stadium, I'd I think about taking this flyer if I needed pitching. 
Baseball HQ scout Nick Richards rated Skogland a 7C prospect in the call-up reports this week. 7 means the potential to be an average regular player. The C means a 50% chance of attaining that level. He might have a little upside, might have a little downside, but what we're talking about here is a guy who's probably going to be a pretty decent everyday innings eater is what they called him, I think. Uh, Anyone else on the Kansas City radar besides Skogland? Yeah, there's another name, and I think we may have discussed him last week when we were talking about all of the Kansas City injuries. Uh, Jake Junis seems to be really turning it up a notch in AAA. He's now thrown 42 innings. He has a 57-8 to 8 strikeout-to-walk ratio and a 2.34 ERA at AAA. Now, he struggled with his control in three Kansas City appearances. He walked seven in seven innings, though he allowed just two runs. He hasn't struggled at all in Omaha, and, and so this is just a heads-up. I think he's going to be back in Kansas City shortly as well. One of the kind of guys that you can stash away if your league rules allow it. Just grab him, put him on reserve, and see what happens. Might be a, a nice early morning. And finally, Jock, the Astros pitching staff, we talked about it earlier this year here at Baseball HQ Radio, was really a strength of one of baseball's best teams, but lately that rotation is reeling. They've sent two more starters to the DL. Charlie Morton has a strained lat, and Joe Musgrove has shoulder discomfort. You touched on this a little in your playing time tomorrow space. Now, the Astros probably have some breathing room because they have such a big lead, but they got to do something about this. Yeah, they got hit pretty hard in a, in a short period of time. They had moved Mike Byers out of the rotation where he'd been really ineffective, and they replaced him with Brad Peacock. And all of a sudden, right after that, they lost both Charlie Morton to a strained lat and Joe Musgrove to a shoulder discomfort. The problem with these injuries right now is that we don't know the extent of them, which isn't good news for the Astros. Whenever you... You don't hear anything. Um, I, you expect the worst. I don't think these are temporary 10-day DL uh, plays. Um, so right now they've had to move Fires back uh, to the rotation. And ironically, Fires comes back to the rotation and probably throws his best game of the year. So I guess that was a bit of good news. But they're also going with uh, with Peacock and David Polino. And while Peacock has been uh, pretty good out of the pen, uh, he struck out a lot of hitters, he still hasn't been able to last... Uh, Past four innings, uh, he, get, he he got lit up a little bit in his last start um, in, in the fifth inning. And Polino is is really a wild card. Doesn't have a lot of experience at AAA. He also struck out a lot of hitters against uh, Minnesota in, in, in going four innings and allowing two runs. Um, I'm not sure he's ready for prime time yet. He only has 28 innings at AAA. He's, he got pretty well torn apart there. Um, the Astros need to find something, uh, and, and I think what they're hoping is is that uh, Colin Hugh can return uh, pretty quickly, maybe in mid-June or, or late June, and hope, hopefully right this ship. Uh, that 11-game lead they have is going to come in handy. David Paulino in the call-ups report was rated by Jeremy Deloney as an 8B prospect, which means an all-star level player is his sort of peak potential and he has a pretty good shot about a 70 percent chance of attaining it so both of those uh, numbers are really good for david polino now the problem is when they give those ratings out jock as you know it doesn't mean he's going to do it right away he it may take him a year or two to get into the swing of things we're talking about what his long-term outlook is in the short term when you're talking about prospects hey who the heck knows right that's right, and uh, Polino's problems have, have always been with his command. Uh, he leaves a lot of pitches over the plate, does pretty good in avoiding the walk, but uh, buyer beware, uh, this is a guy with limited high minors experience, so if you're going to take a flyer, um, um, just just be prepared for the downside as well. All right, Jock, thanks a ton for filling us in on the American League, and again, for filling in on the National League coverage as well. We'll talk with you again next week. Just one league, though.
Okay, sounds good. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and writes regularly for the site. When we come back, our featured guest expert from Baseball Prospectus, Mike Gianella, coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. And the pitch. Swung on in a high drive center field. Jones is going back. He turns. He looks. And that ball is history. Josh Hamilton has hit his fourth home run of the ball game. All of them two-run shots. Eight RBIs for Hamilton. And four home runs. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus and the Flags Fly Forever podcast. Mike, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. This is your first time, isn't it? Yes, it is, and thank you for having me. Oh, it's uh, it's a delight to have me. Before we get started, uh, how are your teams doing in your various leagues? Well, not on the whole, not particularly well. I've had a lot of injuries. Uh, there's one team that Looking back, I, I didn't auction very well, but a lot of it is... So in, in Towers right now, I'm in fourth place, which sounds good, but I'm way behind the, the team that's in first, and a lot of that's because of hitting injuries and the Sterling Marte suspension. Uh, and in labor, I've bounced up a little bit the past few days. I, I think I'm in fifth, and I have a better chance there because the team in first hasn't really jumped ahead. Uh, but similar story, just, just some injuries have held me back, and you know, kind of kept those teams down. I, I think that's a common story around the league this year. It always feels like there's more injuries than usual, and, and that feels, like, anecdotal to me. But this year, looking at the disabled list, and I have some analysts have studied it, there actually have been more injuries the first couple months than we've seen in, in years. Well, actually, I'm going to be talking about that a little later on the show in my Master Notes segment, but the 10-day DL certainly has resulted in more DL stints, and I don't know if those are actual injuries or whether, like, the Dodgers are manipulating the, the system to get days of rest for starters and stuff like that, but there's definitely more guys going on the DL, and even though the periods on the DL are somewhat shorter... The fact is there's more days lost on the DL now than there were last year or probably at any time in that we can remember. Yeah, that's true. And I, you know, one one thing I have is I primarily play in deep leagues, so I'm not in one of those standard leagues with a limited number of DL spots. So my issue isn't that I have to cut a guy who's injured. My issue is just, you know, when when you're in NL or AL only and you have to go out and re- like this this week in tout I had to replace five players and that's an NL only and you know, as you might imagine it wasn't a pleasant week in terms of trying to find bodies to, you know, just even warm bodies, let alone people are playing. Yeah, I'm in tout AL, and I've had exactly the same problem. I lost three guys in a week, three hitters, and you look at the available player pool, and, you know, Mikey Matuk is the best player in there, and and in some instances, there are literally no eligible position players and you have to be lucky to, or if in my case I have Marwin Gonzalez and Jose Ramirez on my roster which I did uh, deliberately at the auction because the flexibility allows you to bounce a guy from one position to another and maybe fill with whatever like you said warm bodies available in the free agent pool but it sucks uh, do you have any shares of Mike Trout anywhere I actually do not I I had him last year uh, in the league uh, this year he was just too expensive and it kind of worked out for me cuz yeah, that, that could be a potentially devastating injury. Although the funny thing is, Trout is so good that if he falls on the short side of that timetable, he's still going to provide a 
a great amount of value. Uh, I think the proposition there is in an auction league where you paid like 50 or around that for him. It probably hurts a little bit more than in a draft league where it was just the cost of that number one pick. Um, so there, there's something to that. But no, I don't have Trout anywhere this year. It's an interesting point about Mike Trout and uh, and the risk that uh, people are willing to pay for because up until this year, one of the reasons that people said, I'm taking Mike Trout first overall or I don't mind spending $46 on Mike Trout is we're supposed to price injury risk into the into the valuation. And when you looked at Mike Trout's record up till this year, what is he's averaging 155 games a year, ga- uh, games played per year. He's never been on the DL, so he's a, he's a rock-solid sure thing right up until the time he's not. Yeah, sure. I mean, injuries happen in any sport, and even a player who's not injury-prone, you're, you're playing a physical sport, and you know, you're, you're bound to get hurt. It's just something, or you can get hurt, I should say. It's just something that can happen. Especially a guy like him who plays so physically. Uh, he's, he generates so much power in running, uh, crashing into the outfield fence. Uh, he hurt himself sliding into second because he hit the bag so hard with his hand that he did something to uh, a part of his uh, hand-wrist complex. And you can see that happening when a guy's running that fast and stopping that suddenly with all of that strength. It's a lot of strain to put on a body. Yeah, it, it's really surprising that he hasn't been hurt sooner or hasn't been on the DL sooner. I, I assumed it would be a crash in the outfield as opposed to a, a play on the base path. I may adjust my valuation system, Mike, to uh, maybe play down by a dollar or two anybody who slides head first because I just, in my mind, it may be like a recency bias thing, but I seem to recall a lot of guys getting hurt by doing that, and I don't remember anybody ever getting hurt sliding in feet first, although they've lost the skill of it. But uh, if they could maybe teach them how to do it again, maybe they could save some of these kind of injuries from happening. I do agree with you on that, and I don't have any data to back it up, but it, it I have the same feeling that sliding head first has led to more injuries and you barely see anyone sliding feet first, but there's just so much you can do to your thumb or, or your hand going in that it, it's a dangerous play. Not just uh, crashing into it as Mike Trout did, he just hit the bag hard with his hand, but I've seen guys, you know, the ball it comes into second, it's a little high, the, sec- the second baseman or shortstop has to jump for it and he lands on the guy's hand coming down. Now, Mike, you've, uh, how long have you been working for Baseball Prospectus? I started in February of 2013. Uh, I was brought on uh, back when Jason Collette and, and Paul Sporer, who are both with Fangraphs, were, were there. And how did you uh, come to, to join the staff? Well, I was working on a blog of my own, and, and I've been doing that uh, going back to 2007. Uh, and, you know, essentially the, the blog got me noticed where I got into Tout Wars. And I got kind of lucky getting into Tout Wars because I was a, a last-second replacement. And I think I was their third choice, but I was the one person who was local, we didn't have to fly to New York or relatively local. And so once I got into Tout Wars, I, I got more noticed again and, and more of the experts noticed what I was doing and, and liked my work. So uh, eventually that was what got me you know, noticed by Baseball Prospectus and the editors there at the time and, and why I got hired. And uh, describe for listeners who are maybe not familiar with Baseball Prospectus or with you personally, what kind of work do you like doing when you're looking at, uh, is it baseball or fantasy baseball or both? I primarily do fantasy baseball. I, I have written some baseball articles, but most of what I do is centered around valuation. That That's something that's always interested me. Uh, I'm a disciple of, of Alex Patton, and I'm sure your listeners know who that is. Uh, so I've, I've taken his pricing models and made some tweaks. 
Uh, but that's what I like to look at. I like to look at what players are earning. I like to look at earnings trends. Uh, I like to go back and, and compare a few years. I also like to take statistics, you know, and and tie them into earnings and be like, okay, well, you know, how much of this is sustainable from an earnings standpoint? What I what I find in fantasy, which, which is interesting, there, there's some really good. And it, it's, I like that question you asked about fantasy versus real baseball. There's some really good baseball analysis out there by fantasy writers, but I find many of them don't do a good job explaining how it's pertinent to fantasy. So you'll read an article and be like, well, this is great information you know, about Joe Biagini and, and how he's pitching, but I don't know how to apply this to fantasy. You haven't really explained that. That's what I try to do. Baseball Prospectus in many ways deserves a lot of the credit for the influx of advanced metrics into fantasy baseball uh, and into the media. Now many of those metrics are, of course, common currency for fantasy owners, but uh, which Baseball Prospectus metrics do you think are the most useful for fantasy? Well, you know, it's a funny question because a lot of it, when Baseball Prospectus started, as as much as it was a, a home for advanced metrics, it wasn't really a home for fantasy. And as a matter of fact, a, a lot of the initial staff there had some disdain for fantasy. They they didn't really like it. They they thought it was not pure. You know, someone like, well, if you're going to play a fantasy game, you know, you should play Stratomatic or Score Sheet or something that emulates the game better than than fantasy, which is really just this mashing of categories, and you're not learning much about the game. Uh, I DRA, which is our, our new metric, deserved run average. I, I tend to look at that. That's a very useful metric in terms of trying to analyze players and, and what they're doing. Um, TAV, which is our our true average metric, it, it's kind of like WOBA, but it's a little bit different, and it, it, it'd be a long explanation to, to explain what TAV is. You, you should go to our website and, and look at the glossary. But I do look at TAV, although it, it's one of those things where it's not a perfect fantasy metric, and you have to be careful. There's a park adjustment in there as well. So, uh, you know, if you see that a hitter has a, a great TF, but he's playing in a, a pitcher's park, you have to be careful not to over-adjust and go crazy. However, you know, I did use TF to use an example to identify Justin Bohr as a potential breakout candidate this year because I saw what he was doing, and, and I looked at that. I was like, you know what, there, there's more to Bohr than just the platoon hitter who was going to suffer. I didn't think he would do this, but I did identify him as someone who was a potential breakout candidate and who was being overlooked as an injury. So those are the two BP metrics I, I primarily look at. But again, you have to be kind of careful because a lot of those metrics are, you can apply them to fantasy, but they're not fantasy exclusive metrics. That'd be the best way to put it. Is there any difference between applying the baseball prospectus metrics to daily fantasy baseball versus the seasonal kind? Yes, uh, although you know, with, with that, you want to be even more careful because daily, as you know, has a very random element to it. And a lot of what I'm looking for in daily, well, primarily where it's not different, I, I, I tend to look for players who are good and try not to get too obsessed with a matchup. You know, we, we know batter versus pitcher, you know, data is, is flawed to say the least. But I try not to look too much at a matchup or, or what's going on. And that's kind of the, you know, if, if everything else is equal, that's where I'll look at, like the park or lefty versus lefty or, or what's going on. So there you have to be even more careful using whether it's our metrics or anyone else's because there's so much of a random element at play 
with, with Daily Fantasy. And, you know, to be honest, I'm, I do play Daily Fantasy. I'm certainly not an expert in it, though. That, that's not what I get paid to analyze, you know, just to, to give that caveat. When I am looking at Daily Fantasy, I probably look at the metrics even less just because there's so much noise already. And Daily adds this additional level of, of noise and, and statistical error bars that it's not that I don't consider the metrics, but I'm looking at them more in a broader sense as opposed to just looking for something that's going to make me crack the code of daily. Yeah, I agree. And uh, in the early days of daily fantasy baseball, of course, the people who didn't like it uh, said that it's basically a luck game and, and not a skill game, whereas seasonal is much more a skill game than a luck game. And I don't know about either of those propositions, and certainly that argument's long past. But there is a, certainly an element of you can make all the right decisions in daily and still come up with a dud team because of just what happened that night that is much less likely to occur in seasonal, barring a Mike Trout injury. But if you have a, you know, a career 300 hitter in a daily fantasy league, he could go 0 for 5. But if you have him in a seasonal league, he's probably going to hit somewhere around 300. Yeah, I, you know, that, that's where that's where people get tripped up. You know, I, I've heard uh, that this is something that, that Ron Chandler has said that I, I agree with emphatically, which is where you make money in daily fantasy, it, it's not on the individual contest. It's on how you manage your, your contests across the board and the volume. That, that's really what it is. The, the analogy I've, I've sort of made, which is imperfect, it's like if you go out and get a book about how to win at blackjack. There, there's advice in the book that will talk about you know, when to double down and when to split and you know, when to hit um, with, with what the dealer's showing. But where you really win or lose in a game like that is, is how you place your bets and, and how you manage the deck in terms of what's you know, coming out, like how many cards have come out or how many tens have come out. DFS is similar in that you can win a contest and you certainly, you know, having the knowledge you have or I have puts you at an advantage, but there's so much that's random there. You're not going to just win money in DFS or win significantly playing a contest day. It's the volume you play, but it's also how you manage the contest and where you place those bets that matters much more than the players that you're playing. I don't want to say the players don't matter at all, but people overemphasize, you know, making that perfect pick on a player and um, underemphasize their contest management. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid and just starting to play poker and I was talking to my dad who played when he was in the service and I said, you know, what's the secret to playing poker well? And he said, everybody thinks it's a card game. And he says, it's not, it's a money management game. And you've got to be real careful about how you use your money and understand what your likelihoods of winning are at any given time. And, and it was a really useful lesson. And I ended up being an okay poker player over the years. And if you're a poker player in the professional ranks, this is an analogy that a lot of people use talking about daily. And it is, you might beat uh, Phil Ivey in a single hand or even in an evening, but if you play him every night for a year, he's going to, he's going to wipe you out. Yeah. I, you know, the, the poker analogy is, is a good one too. And, you know, if you ever go down to like, you know, I, I used to go down to Atlantic city and, and play occasionally, but what I would do before I played is I'd watch and you can see it. You can see the people who are aggressive and are betting on every hand and winning a, a good chunk of hands because they're, they're, you know, going in, they're anting up on, on all those hands. But then you figure out they're not the ones winning the most money. The people winning the most money are the people betting on the right hands and, and making the play when they, they need to make the play. That, that's, that's what it comes down to. And 
know, again, the other thing about DFS is to get back to that. There are pros in DFS, and I am not one of them. There are people who have studied this to the nth degree, and it is similar to poker in that you, you know, you can get your clock clean if you're not careful thinking that you're this expert in DFS. There is some study to it that is required that I admittedly haven't done. When the first big hullabaloo started about banning it and making it illegal and so forth, there was a lot of stories that came out about the guys who were being really successful in DFS, and uh, they tended to be Wall Street-type guys or financial guys who were adept at using computers and, and writing code to make these bets really smart, and then they would cover every conceivable angle. It's uh, almost like back in the day, you remember that story about those Australians who tried to come in and buy every one of the 14 million Powerball tickets because they the the prize was bigger than 14 million and I don't think it worked, but just an anecdote. I I played in a tournament once and I finished, I did pretty well and I finished eighth and I won a little bit of money and uh, I looked and the, the, the guy who, who finished first also finished second, fourth, fifth, ninth, 13th, 17th. And basically he had played a core of about maybe four or five players. And then he had basically, you know, like boxed a Quinella with everybody else. And, uh, in that particular night, he had boxed a bunch of, uh, a bunch of Baltimore Orioles players, including, uh, um, Steve Levenger, is that his name? Just a, a, a scrub catcher who ended up having two home runs, those kind of things. But you know, he put in like 3,000 entries into this 10,000 entry tournament. And, and you know, if you, if you have that kind of financial muscle behind you and you're smart, certainly it increases your chances of doing well. No, and that's absolutely it. You, you put yourself in a position to win by betting smartly. You know, it, it's different than, than seasonal fantasy. You know, in that seasonal fantasy, yes, you, you can play in a lot of leagues, but in each individual league, you don't have the the ability to really do that. You you have to kind of play with the lineup or the hand you're dealt. And and the deeper the league, the the more difficult it is to you know extricate yourself from a, a bad situation. But you're absolutely right. In DFS, there's there's so many permutations or ways to set it up so that if you play it wisely and you, you manage your lineup successfully and manage your contest successfully, you, you can can do okay for yourself. You know, I think the other thing about DFS is that and this is another gambling point, people, if you look at, at successful gamblers, whether it's DFS or whether it's poker or any other game, you, you'll notice that those players do have bad nights or, or even weeks where they lose money. But you also notice the amount of money they're losing, you know, it, it's, that there's, they're wisely bankrolling and it's a certain, like they're, they're mitigating their losses because they know they're going to lose and they're betting in an intelligent way. You know, the, the worst thing I see, whether it's DFS or any kind of gambling, you know, again, to use the blackjack analogy, you'll see the guy at the table who gets off on a fast roll and, and he wins like two or $300 early and then he changes his bets and he starts betting, you know, like make, taking more risk, taking unnecessary risk, thinking I'm going to have the big night, but all you're doing is, is you're just taking the, the winnings that you had and you're putting yourself into a losing position. Playing with house money, they used to call it, and it's the biggest mistake that a lot of gamblers make, that's for sure. Uh, Mike, I've been reading your work for a long time, and I've always been struck by its vivacity and liveliness, and I noticed on your Twitter feed that you noted the passing of Frank DeFord, the great sports writer from Sports Illustrated and NPR, and rightly so. Frank DeFord was a giant in sports writing, a huge influence on all of us who took up sports writing in any form. Uh, Do any Frank DeFord stories stick in your mind from his great uh, oeuvre, as they say? Um, no story specifically. My my memory of DeFord primarily comes just from 
like when, when I was a kid, my parents, I, I was really into sports and I was kind of the black sheep of the family because no one in my family was, was into sports. It's just something I got into at an early age. And I, I just, you know, I got Sports Illustrated along with Baseball Digest. And you know, even as a kid, I could tell what a good writer DeFord was. You, you, there were words I didn't know, but what really struck me is how easy he made difficult writing seem. Like he was such a good writer. He was so fluid, but it was accessible. It was something that even as a child I, I could read and, and really enjoy. And, you know, he was one of the people that made me want to be a writer. Like he, he just knew how to write. And you could you could tell like there, there's some writers like that where you you can you read them and you can just tell that they know how to write and you know it's the things you learn as an adult which is not always the biggest words it's it's not always the most complicated sentence construction it's delivering your your message to the audience as you pointed out you know making your writing lively and and he he did that. And making it lively without being ostentatious. Uh, I used to work in the newspaper business as an editor and a writer, and and uh, I had this guy came to work for me, and uh, he was given to me by my, the uh, people who ran the paper and said, here's your new employee, and I didn't get a chance to read anything. And he wanted to be lively too, but it was he did it by, like, being ostentatious. It's a really good word, I think. Uh, a lot of unnecessary frills, a lot of big words where small ones would have done. And it was, as a result, I found it very hard to read. And, and I kept telling him, look, if you have something to say, say it in a way that people will understand and move on. And if you want to be vivid and lively, use verbs, not adjectives and adverbs. Because this, this was a guy who would routinely stick, you know, three adjectives in front of any noun just to, to liven it up. But all it did was bog it down. And, and, uh, I think that's a lesson that a lot of young writers especially need to, to take to account. Yeah, I, and I, I did the same thing when I was a young writer and particularly when I was, was trying to write non-sports where I would try to use the biggest words and, and throw semicolons or other types of punctuation into a sentence. There's nothing wrong with writing that way if it comes naturally, but if from you have to have a certain skill to do that. The most important thing is you, you just have to remember you're, you're, writing for, you're writing for other people. You're not writing for yourself. If, if you want to write a journal and you want to write that way and you enjoy it, that's certainly fine. But when, you know, once you're writing for an audience, you, you just you have to remember that it's vital. When you said semicolons, I had to laugh. I went through a phase, as most of us do when we're younger, where pretty much every sentence had a semicolon in it, and I tried to figure out later why I was doing it. And I realized it was because at that same time, I was reading a lot of uh, sort of 18th century English literature, Jane Austen and Henry Fielding and, and so on, and it was common practice in those days to use semicolons and write these very long, ornate sentences. And it's amazing how what you read ends up influencing what you write, and that's why you, if you're going to be a sports writer or any kind Kind of writer, really, you should read guys like Frank DeFord because that's a style you do want to emulate. Good newspaper writers, it's that same thing. It's that economy of, of writing that you don't see in some writing, and that's a good term for it, where you have a certain amount of words to make your point. I, I've always said, when, when I get an assignment where I have to write a piece that's, or, or something short, that's 150 or 200 words, and it's a contribution to a larger project, that's more challenging to me than writing 2,000 words. 2,000 words, or if I don't have a word limit, that's easy because you can write, 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 and you know you can make a mistake or two, and if it's written well, people don't notice it. Those 150 words, when you want to make them count, that, that is the most difficult writing for me ever to do because you, you 
have a clunker of a sentence in there, and it really stands out. It does, and uh, you, you run out of time to make the points you need to make if you're not being really economical with your words, in much the same way that you have to manage your bankroll when you're gambling. In fact, you've got a limited resource, and you have to make the most out of it. Uh, any other writers, sports writers or otherwise, that you admire? Well, I, I like you know, some of the, the more current writers. You know, Ben Lindbergh, who used to work at Baseball Prospectus, is, is excellent. You know, Sam Miller, who also was, was with us and has moved on to ESPN, is, is one of the best. Uh, I, I enjoy Grant, Grant Brisby, who writes for McCovey Chronicles. Uh, he's, he writes mostly about the Giants for SB Nation, but he writes about baseball in general. And you know, he's another one. He's very funny, and he just makes, he just makes that humor seem easy. Like that, that's one of the most difficult things to do. I, so I, I wrote a piece recently for, for Baseball Prospectus that was a you know, it was fantasy values of, of players from baseball movies. I don't know if you read that one. And it was a joke. You know, it was a joking article. It wasn't meant to be taken seriously. And, and people really liked it. But I was like, the effort I had to put into those 1,200 words to, to make that funny or, or make that humorous was much harder than writing a serious analytical piece, you know, about a player. Because, you know, in that case, you're, you know, it's hard to do the analysis, but the writing itself comes easily to me. Um, so that's the kind of writing I admire, writing where it's not necessarily in my comfort zone and seeing other people do it. I'm sure it's not easy for them, but um, you know, on, the, on my end, reading it, it is, and, and that's a difficult skill. Yeah, isn't that the paradox, right? Uh, people read the work of good writers and they think, wow, that was really easy to read. It must have been terribly easy to write. And you think to yourself, well, in fact, exactly the opposite is probably true. The, the, the more effort the writer puts in, the less effort you have to put in and vice versa is also true. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And you did mention your fantasy freestyle column last week at BP Mike. Uh, you wrote an interesting item, as you said, about the fantasy value of baseball players from the movies. Uh, where, first of all, did the idea come from? Well, the idea came because, as often happens on social media, people were, were talking about, you know, debating something. I don't know where these debates start, but they were talking about Major League, and I was thinking that Major League, as much as I liked that movie when it came out, it, it feels kind of dated now, which I know to some people is, is sacrilege. But it just led me to the idea of how would these players be viewed today, you know, in this analytical context, which then became more of a, well, how would, I, how would their fantasy value work? And that was the genesis of it. It led to some interesting observations just from the standpoint of, you know, so like the players in Major League, for example, the heroes in that movie are the Cleveland Indians, but the Yankees are the players who have the best statistics. And you know, if you're playing a fantasy league, you obviously would want those Yankees as opposed to the, the players on Cleveland who, you know, it seemed more like one of those gritty team efforts and, and not necessarily a statistical marvel. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too, that you valued Clue Haywood. I think he was the triple crown hitter and the closer, Duke Sierra, who was a, a, a absolutely knock-em-dead closer. Uh, but before we talk about specific players, Mike, what are your favorite baseball movies? Obviously, Major League, maybe not one of them. I, I enjoyed Moneyball. I, I know some people don't like that movie, but that was, that was a very good movie. Uh, it, it wasn't true to the book or perfect to the book, but that's almost impossible to do as, as a movie. I know some people groan at this or, or roll their eyes and, and think it was manipulative, but I really enjoyed Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams was just a well-done movie, and if you've, if you've read the book, it, it was very close to, to that. Um, baseball movies are tough. to. I, I mentioned in the article I, I enjoy Little Big League. That, that's a fun movie, and, and it's clearly a, a fantasy, but it's just such a... 
it's such a ridiculous fantasy, and it captures the idea of what it would be like if you were a 12-year-old kid and, and buy a baseball team. In general, it's tough to rate baseball movies because they're, they are going to be imperfect. And the, the odd thing is the more baseball that's in a movie, the less it holds true. It's nearly impossible to capture the speed of the game and, and what it's like on the field. And if you watch a lot of baseball like I do, you really feel that when you're watching a movie where, where there's a lot of on-the-field action. I like baseball movies, too, as a rule, and I used to be a movie reviewer. And I, but I've always thought that the biggest problem they have is that when the, they're showing game action, the actors just don't look like they have the baseball skills that they're purported to have. They don't look like big league players. When they swing the bat and when they throw the ball, I think, is when it looks the worst. Do you find any other aspects of it are, are not as uh, true to life as they ought to be? Those are probably the two big ones. The, the, the swing is, is what really stands out to me as, as something where you, you watch an actor swing and it just doesn't come through as, as, the, as the reality. Uh, the, other, the other thing, this isn't really with the athletes, but, but sometimes, you know, and again, you, you understand it's a limitation of a movie, sometimes with the crowd shots or, or what's going on, it, it's pretty clear that it, it's a back lot or it's not the real stadium. And you're just watching a, a place with like a couple thousand people at the most, uh, for an old time movie, like the natural that might work because you know, crowds weren't as big or you wouldn't think they'd be as big, but in a contemporary movie, you, you get the feeling of, Oh, like this isn't right. And then when the crowd is correct, sometimes what they're doing is they're cutting to the real life events and then they're cutting to the event on the field. Honestly, that was something about Moneyball that, that I liked, is that a lot of those baseball scenes were, were just scenes from the actual you know, season where, where the A's went on that role and not you know, an attempt at a recreation. I'll tell you a funny story about that. When I was uh, working at the newspaper and I was simultaneously a baseball fan, as I mentioned, and the movie reviewer, the the Hollywood movie, A League of Their Own, came out. You remember this with uh, Gina Davis and Tom Hanks uh, based on the women's pro league? It was a really good movie, in fact, yeah. And uh, it was based, some of the characters were based on actual players, and a lot of those players came from Saskatchewan, where I was working. There, there was a very active women's softball and baseball activity going on around that time, and a lot of those young women ended up playing in that league. And I, we actually tracked down two or three of them, and I took them to the movie. And after it was over, I asked them, well, what did you think? How true to it was to your experience? And the one lady, her name was Dolly. Uh, I can't remember her last name. And she said, everything that they showed about what happened off the field was really accurate. It was exactly like that kind of a lot of shenanigans going on, a lot of drinking, when you know, all of these kind of things. And I said, yeah, what about on the field? And she just looked at me and shook her head. She said, no, we were really serious out there and we were good. And these ladies God bless them. They weren't that good. Yeah, uh, it's, it's like anything else. You know, you're. This is why I don't try to be too hard on a baseball movie. You're talking about the best, you know, athletes in any sport in the world. They're going to be elite, and you you can spend like you for for a movie that involves action scenes. You you can train somebody to fight, and you can do a crash course, and you can send them to the gym, and you can make them look ripped. But for baseball, you, you can't train somebody over the course of, of three months to be an elite baseball player. It, it's just not going to happen. You know, you think about someone, you know, to use the example of Michael Jordan, you know, Michael Jordan was the best basketball player in the world and, you know, an athlete, and he went to try and play baseball and, you know, he couldn't do it. And, you know, at least couldn't do it at a level that he'd get to the majors. So that that's the problem that movies have is, is that you're just not going to be able to take, 
you know, even a Kevin Costner or someone who looks, you know, Wesley Snipes is an example too. You know, you're not gonna be able to take somebody who looks that way and turn them into an elite athlete. It's just not gonna happen. And I've heard people say that it depends on the sport. Baseball is a very specialized sport, but I found the same is true of pretty much every kind of sports movie. The football movies, they don't look like football players. The, the, the actions don't look right. Even prize fighting, and there are a lot of really good prize fighting movies. When push comes to shove, you, you have to have some really sharp editing like they did in Raging Bull to disguise the fact that these guys just weren't prize fighters. And especially, I think it's more true in baseball movies for people like us who watch the game a lot uh, or if if it's a prize fighting movie my dad was a huge fight fan he fought himself and uh, whenever we watch these things he couldn't get past the idea that these guys clearly weren't trained fighters and uh, and therefore the entire movie was undermined to some extent but most people don't notice it because they're not as intimately familiar with what the real thing looks like sure and it's like anything else you know I, I've had people you, know, you, you watch a movie about something where someone else is an expert and they'll make complaints, and you know, someone listens to this conversation who isn't the baseball, they might roll their eyes be, because they're looking at it like, well, you know, why should I, you know, why should I listen to you? I'm not really here to, you know, make sure it's realistic. I just want to be entertained, and and that's, you know, that's a fair point too. And and that's why with something like Major League, I I'm not too hard on people who like it because some people they, they want to watch a movie to be entertained. They don't want to watch it to be realistic. You know, I had a friend who years ago, he was a doctor or maybe he was a resident at the time, but he, he said something like, you know, I said, what kind of movies do you like? You know, you're a really smart guy. And he's like, I like action blow em up movies. The stupider, the better. And I'm like, why? He's like, well, because I'm you know working hard for 10 or 12 hours a day. You know, I'm making decisions on people's healthcare, quality of life. Once in a while, a life, you know, saving decision. When I get home and watch a movie, I just want to turn my brain off. I, I don't want to think about anything. I was going to say, too, I, I was friends with a doctor once, and the last thing you want to do with him was watch a, a medical TV show or movie because, you know, talk about eye-rolling, because just like we say, though, that didn't look the, the tiniest bit like a curveball grip. He'd be going, can you believe they used a number 10 stent in that situation? <laughs> you know, All right, yeah, I know. And, and when you hear that, you realize, man, when I talk about baseball movies, it must be like that to everybody else as well. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, you have a podcast through baseball perspectives as well called flags fly forever it's a really good show in uh, edition 134 i think it was just last week uh, you and your colleagues had on the uh, co-editor-in-chief of bp toronto and i didn't, he didn't even know you guys had those kind of things josh hausem is his name and y'all discussed the success of marco estrada the right-hander there especially a huge increase in strikeouts and whether on your own analysis or after talking with josh how sustainable do you think estrada's current performance is well i think i think it's pretty sustainable you know we we've seen there, there was a a period of time where we'd look at a pitcher like Estrada and, and we'd look at his low strikeout rate and we'd look at his his FIP and we'd ignore everything else and say, well, you know, eventually he's just going to get hit. But he's found success with this. You know, he, he works off the changeup and he generates, at this point we have enough data where we know he generates very poor contact. And, and that can work just as well as a pitcher who gets a lot of strikeouts. Now, for fantasy, obviously, the guy who gets a lot of strikeouts has more value, and you know we, we understand that. But in terms of being a viable major league pitcher, there, there's no reason to me that unless there's an injury or something happens or Estrada loses a little bit of velocity, 
why he can't continue succeeding and, and pitching at the level he's pitched for the last couple of years. Uh, Gene McCaffrey, who's a guest on the show, mentioned a couple of years ago that Estrada had a, kind of an ace in the hole that people weren't realizing, and it was that he was willing and able to succeed pitching up in the zone. And uh, as a result, he was generating a lot of infield flies. I, I know that that was something that he was doing year in, year out, not so much this year, I don't think. And Gene's opinion, and I share it, is that sometimes there are things that a, that a pitcher does that make the uh, lack of velocity a little less important. In other words, he knows how to pitch rather than just throw, and there's something to that. Yeah, I agree. There are some pitchers who, now it's tough because to that point, one reason that, that you know, Gene I know is older, and you know, I'm not saying some line Gene, I, I like Gene, I, I've met him a few times in real life, but Gene remembers that there were more pitchers like that. One reason Estrada is so counterintuitive to us so many pitchers are tr- not trained that way now. They're trained to throw hard. Uh, they're conditioned to think the velocity is king. And as a result, a lot of these pitchers, they can blow the ball by hitters, but they don't have that finesse in the zone or even out of the zone to get a guy out. I agree, Estrada does have that. Um, that's where it's tough to analyze, though, because he he's a rare and perhaps a dying breed. Uh, more and more what you see is you see guys throwing you know, in the low to mid-90s with, with movement, but when they have the movement, there's no purpose behind it. They're not thinking, well, you know, I know my you know, low 80s, or I'm sorry, my high 80s fastball is going to get this guy out if I throw it this way and in this part of the zone, versus where if I throw it here, it's going to go you know, 450 feet. So I do agree with that point on Estrada, but one reason perhaps he was difficult to identify is pitchers like that are such a rarity now. I was looking at it the other day. His average fastball velocity is actually under 90 miles an hour. He's 81st out of the 93 in Major League Baseball who had qualified at the time I checked. Also Dallas Keuchel, Andrew Triggs, and Jason Vargas in that same boat, very near the bottom of the list in velocity, but having pretty good years. Keuchel's having a really good year. Uh, Jason Vargas is a guy you talked about on your podcast. Uh, What do do you think is the deal with Jason Vargas? Is he as sustainable as Estrada, for instance? Well, I mean, he's not sustainable to the level, you know, of what he was doing at the beginning of the year. And I I know he had a bad outing, I believe it was against the Yankees, that put, put a lot of correction into that ERA. But uh, Vargas is another pitcher who, even though the velocity is low, I believe he picked up some velocity uh, after his surgery, and that's kind of made a difference for him. I-, I could see Vargas slipping in the second half but still being a better pitcher than he was pre-injury. That's probably the best answer I'd give you to, you know, is what Jason Vargas, is what he's doing sustainable? You know, likely not at this level where he's got a two three nine ERA, but I, I could see it being sustainable where he puts up like a three five the rest of the way and, and finishes with an ERA around three or, or a little bit over that. You said something, Mike, in your podcast that I thought might be a little controversial, so naturally I want to bring it up and hold your feet to the fire. You said it's tough playing in experts league sometimes because there's so little trading. Uh, first, why do you suppose there is so little trading in experts leagues? You're right. The biggest reason, and this is something you think wouldn't apply to experts, but does, I believe that most experts don't want to lose a trade. They don't want to look bad among their colleagues. They don't want that to perhaps show up in an article somewhere. And as a result, there's this fear of, well, if I make a bad trade, 
it's going to affect me later on. So offers I tend to get, um, I try to avoid this and perhaps I do it too, but the offers I tend to get are lowball. They're, they're very much of the variety of, you know, I, I will give you this marginal player for this player who's better. And my inclination when I get an offer like that is I try to negotiate, but there's a feeling of, well, how do I even start with this? Um, you know, the, the, other, the other phenomenon and the reason people don't trade is that for the most part in a redraft league, there's this idea that your bet is made after the first couple months, and there's this feeling that you're moving the deck chairs on the Titanic. So it's this idea of, okay, so if I do make a fair trade and I get a hitter for a pitcher and I gain five points in, in hitting and lose five points in pitching, I'm not moving anywhere and I've just made a trade for the sake of making a trade. It's, it's difficult to find that trade where one person has the excess where it's like, oh, you know, I've, I've got an extra starter and I'm leading an ERA and whip so I can make that trade for a hitter. Uh, people tend to avoid, and then the third thing is people tend to avoid, and I'm guilty of this too at time, you know, the experts are multiple leagues. So we tend to avoid doing the kind of analysis that I used to do way back when, when I was in a home league and I would sit there and really pour over my team and look at it and be like, well, what does my team need? What can I do? What does this other guy need? Like, I, I don't do that as much as I should, and I definitely don't do that now that I'm in multiple leagues and most of them being expert leagues. Yeah, something you said really resonated with me. I've talked about this on Baseball HQ Radio before, including just recently, but I remember making an offer in, uh, I was in Tout Mixed at the time, and uh, it was a Paul Goldschmidt offer, and I don't remember whether I was giving Goldschmidt or getting him, doesn't matter, but I sent the owner that I was trying to deal with a long email saying, look, if we make this deal, you're going to go up five points in this category without losing any ground there. I'm going to go up four points in that category, and we're both going to go by... Uh, guys that each, each other are trying to pe- trying to not be passed by or to pass, it's a really smart idea, I think. And the, I got the reply back, and uh, the guy said, uh, basically, I think you're right. I think your analysis is correct, but I just don't want to trade. He had Goldsmith, so he said, I just don't want to trade Paul Goldsmith, and that was the end of the the deal, and no negotiation or anything. And in hindsight, I knew this guy was a good player, and in hindsight, I've always tried to figure out. Why wouldn't he have at least considered the deal or made a counter or tried to tweak it or something, but it just to brush it off? And I think it was because nobody wants to be the guy who traded Paul Goldschmidt. There's a lot to that, and it really is this. You wouldn't think experts would have it, but you know, I'd say outside of Fred Zinke of, of MLB, who's never met a trade he doesn't like, and I say <laughs> that's for sure. Way. I mean, Fred, Fred's a great player, and his trades almost always work out for him. There, there's this timidity where... People don't want to make a trade where, where they feel like, you know, they, they traded the best player away. That, that phenomenon is, is part of a separate phenomenon, too, that I, I noticed with experts, which is I tend to build teams, and I play in a lot of only leagues as part of it. I tend to build these balanced, boring teams that do pretty well. And some experts tend to buy or, or draft the big names, or they, they go after the hot rookie, and some of that is the idea in November, you know, it, it's easy to tout that you were the guy who was in on, you know, Trey Turner or Aaron Judge is a better example this year. Uh, it's a lot harder to tout that you were a guy in on Justin Bohr or even Ryan Zimmerman. There's a lot of casual players you know, buying magazines, subscribing to websites where the reaction is so. So so there's some of that. People like to buy those, those players like Goldschmidt and they like to hold on to them as well. 
there's tons of regular home leagues out there where the lack of trading is becoming increasingly problematic and taking a lot of the fun out of the game. When I started in back in 91, we had tons of trading in my league. And by the time I left, it was two or three trades a year, maybe. What do you think home leagues can do, or all leagues for that matter, to encourage more trading? Because as you correctly said on your podcast, it does add a lot of excitement and interest to the game. Well, it, it's tough because you can't make people trade, and, and it, there's some home league personalities who just don't like to trade or don't have that temperament. But I would say the biggest thing you can do, so a lot of home leagues, what winds up happening is you, you have a, a bailing or dumping culture, depending on which term you want to use. So people wait for those trades. They wait for, for the teams in the second division to fall out far enough where they decide I'm playing for next year. And the teams at the you know top of you know make those trades, or they trade their future talents or their present talents. So what you really need to do is you need to set it up so whether it's a salary cap, and I'm not advocating for any of these things. Different things work for different leagues. So whether it's a salary cap, whether there's a a separate financial prize in the second half, whether there's a penalty for teams in the bottom for you know finishing under a certain point threshold or a certain place. You need a way to keep everybody in the league interested in the entire season. That That's often the biggest problem. And, and in redraft leagues, it's even worse. Because if you're in a redraft league and you, you have you know, a Mike Trout injury, you're already looking at and you play fantasy football, you're looking at your fantasy football team. If you don't play fantasy football, you're thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to catch up on you know, Better Call Saul or whatever TV show you're watching. So that's really what you need to do. You need to make it so that everybody's interested in that league for the entire season and has a a vested interest in paying attention. Excellent year for Better Call Saul, so uh, not a bad fallback position, I guess. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Uh, Mike Cleveland announced they're moving Danny Salazar to the bullpen, speaking of high strikeout guys, and they promoted Mike Clevenger to the rotation, at least while Kluber's uh, on the DL and he's coming back, uh, so maybe this is a short-run thing. But how do you think Salazar owners in particular should manage a situation where he's been sent to the bullpen for basically poor performance? Well, unfortunately, and I have Salazar in a league. And, you know, unfortunately, unless you're in a, a, a 10-team mixed league, you've pretty much got to ride Salazar out and, and hope that this is just a, a short-term thing. I mean, he's only going to miss a, a couple of starts. I, I do have to say I'm, I'm not extremely optimistic about Salazar. He, he's just one of those pitchers. Yeah, the strikeouts are great, but he's just one of those pitchers who can't go deep in the games. You know, you, it's funny. You are talking about Marco Estrada. Salazar is almost the anti-Estrada. He, he's somebody who clearly has the ability but isn't a pitcher. It's not even a thrower, but he just doesn't have a game plan up there. His game plan just seems to be to throw hard and, and hope he blows it by hitters. And, you know, that, that work's coming up. And when you have the stuff like Salazar's, it can even work on your good days in the majors, but there's days it doesn't work. So if you if you drafted him you you really or or bought him you really have to hang tight and and hope it works out um i'm just not the most optimistic person you know if you want to ask about replacements you know some of that depends on the the type of league you're in and that's why i say you know in a 15 team mixed league like like tout mixed or or labor mixed it's tougher to find a replacement for a guy like that than than you'd think like you know I, i know ty block for example was was picked up in in labor mixes this week, and honestly, I'd rather ride out of Salazar for a couple of weeks. Hope he gets some strikeouts out of the pen, 
then go with a tie block. Who, you know, the ERA looks okay, but he, he's striking out nobody. Another interesting situation uh, I'd like your comment on is in Texas. Joey Gallo's in the top five in the majors in home runs. He's got 30-plus RBIs. He's even stolen some bases, but he's also hitting under 200. His on base is barely 300. Uh, a couple of other guys in similar boats, Ryan Schimpf is like that. Mike Napoli also in Texas, a lot of home runs, but batting average disasters. Chris Davis in Oakland as well. In draft planning, we can always plan to get a high batting average or on-base guy to offset your Joey Gallows and your Ryan Shimps and your Chris Davises. But once the season is underway, how can an owner assess players and make moves to counter the stats gains from one with the stats blow to the other category? During the season, and particularly with, with rate stats, it's, it's very difficult to do that. And, and particularly... You know, I have to look at Shimp. You know, I, I know Gallo's at, at three ten, which which is is bad, but it's not as awful as it sounds. just because of those walks. Uh, you know, Shimp is, is below three hundred and is on base. And I'm thinking even more about a batting average league. Like if you're in a batting average league and you've got that one sixty eight from Shimp, this is where the game has changed and it makes it more difficult to, to mitigate. There was a time where, you know, you, you remember this too, you know, when you hit, if you hit 170, I mean, heck, you hit below 200, you're on the bench. Uh, it didn't matter what you were doing in, in terms of your walks or in terms of your, your home runs. And frankly, some of that was you wouldn't even get an opportunity to play because the attitude was, well, you got to get a hit at least, you know, one, you know, one in every, you know, five times at a minimum, unless you're a defensive person. Um, in terms of mitigating it, what you really need to do is you just really need to go out there and I would look at this the other way. You have to look at it like, well, I'm going to lose, whether it's average or on base, I'm going to lose some points I wasn't anticipating for. I would try to make those points up elsewhere, whether it's you know in, in a power category or a speed category. Average is, is batting average on base, you know, even ERA. Those are difficult categories to chase and you just wind up putting yourself in a position where you're over-investing on something that just isn't guaranteed. While you were saying that, it, something popped into my mind. Uh, a friend of mine told me years ago when I was just starting out in fantasy baseball, and that is, he said, everybody will tell you to trade from your strength, but a just as good or better play can be to trade from your weakness. If you know you've got Joey Gallo and God help you, Mike Napoli and Chris Davis, you know your on-base percentage or your or your especially batting average is going to be in the toilet all year. There's very little you can do about it short of waving them or dropping them. Why not trade your other high batting average guys? You know you're taking your one or two in the category and shore up with that strength trade it off somewhere where it's tactically helpful and maybe pick up a closer or maybe pick up another power guy or do something to move in a category where you're positioned well rather than trying to chase after that one batting average point that you're going to have to struggle like mad just to get the one point and maybe undermine the rest of your categories in doing it. Oh, I, I completely agree, and I've given that advice as well. Uh, that, that's a big mistake. I, I see many novice or even intermediate fantasy owners make where they chase every category and they do it all year long you know again in a shallower mix you can do that because there's all those guys on the wire and you can cycle through players but beyond that you know save is a good example you know sometimes you you might buy a closer or, or two closers and they don't work out or somebody gets hurt and you see people just cycling through and, and over and over trying to get saves and it's like well at some point you're just better off 
letting the category go. And if you have a closer left and you, you see that you can only lose one or two points, it makes so much sense to trade that closer for, for something and cut your losses as opposed to saying, well, you know, I'm going to keep chasing and I'm going to keep wasting resources. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely for dumping categories in season if it comes to that. Like, you, you shouldn't go out of your way to do it. But you can find yourself in that position, and that's where you have to be adaptable. Yeah, amen to that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, during the season, I like to ask our guest experts to talk about some players who've got the attention uh, for the rest of the season. Thumbs up, thumbs down for anybody you like. Let's uh, uh, try to pick out guys that maybe our listeners might not be uh, top of mind on. Let's start with some thumbs up guys, guys you think should interest our listeners. Starting in the American League, who's a hitter that gets thumbs up for the balance of the year for you? Somebody I like who, who's in the AL is Jorge Bonifacio. Uh, just uh, looks like he's going to get the playing time. You know, they, they've said recently that uh, Jorge Soler is uh, they're having trouble finding time for him. And Bonifacio is, is kind of a lone bright spot or one of the few lone bright spots in a lineup that just isn't very good. Uh, he's somebody who, who's barely owned. I don't know the ownership percentage in front of me, but probably should have a little bit more play than he does. The, the power looks legitimate. Uh, he a little bit under 20 home runs last year in, in AAA, but, but he was a developing hitter. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him stick in that lineup and you know, hit another like, 15, 20 home runs the rest of the way. Interesting fact, I heard about Jorge Bonifacio on a Kansas City broadcast the other night. He has as many home runs this year as his brother Emilio had in his entire career. So and probably going to make more money out of it, too. Uh, going over to the National League, who's a hitter you think deserves the uh, thumbs up? Somebody I, who's had a hot streak who, you know, and we're still on the power here, somebody who's had a hot streak who I, I think it's sustainable and, and can continue it uh, is Hunter Renfro. Uh, when I was watching uh, Hunter Renfro at the beginning of the season, he looked really looked like somebody who was swinging from his heels and, and trying to you know knock the ball out of the park on every swing and you know the result was he was getting exploited. Uh, watching him this last month, you know he's still going to strike out. That that's just the kind of hitter he is. Uh, but his strikeout rate has dropped. Uh, he's he's making better swings. He's making higher quality contact. Uh, the walk rate is up enough to the point where you look at him and you're like, well. You know, again, we talked about this with Schimpf and, and Gallo. The on-base is, is not going to be pretty. And, you know, if, if that's a category that you're looking at, you don't want to pick them up. But if you're looking for power, uh, the, the power is certainly legitimate. And Petco does not play as the park that it used to play as. You know, it, it used to be a park that was a, a severe pitcher's park. The last couple of years, it, it's played neutral or sometimes even as a slight hitters. I'd have to kind of look at the, the righty-lefty data to see where that you know shakes out. But... Uh, Renfro is somebody you know, similar to Bonifacio, a little bit more owned than him, but someone who's still kind of under the radar in you know a number of, of mixed leagues. Going over to the mound, Mike, in the American League, who's a pitcher you think deserves the thumbs up for the balance of the year? It's hard to say this guy's under the radar because he was an elite pitcher, but David Price, um, he looked good in his first outing. I, I, I really didn't know what to expect out of him. Uh, he was somebody I thought might be you know, out for most of the season. There was a lot of doom and gloom. Uh, there's always the injury risk with Price now at this point, particularly for the rest of the year. Uh, but as we've seen, there, there's a couple pitchers that have been able to recover and, and, you know, work through this issue as opposed to just going to get the surgery. And 
Price is someone, you know, we, we know the skills are there, and there, there's a bit of a discount thanks to that concern, and it's an opportunity to get a potentially elite or close to elite pitcher uh, without paying the full freight. And in the National League, who's a pitcher you think deserves the thumbs up? Well, you know, the National League is funny. There, there's more pitchers there that you could potentially identify as as giving the thumbs up. Um, somebody in the NL I, I kind of like who has a sneaky value and, and is kind of, yeah, the, the ERA doesn't necessarily show it, but, but he's looked better this year, believe it or not, is Adam Wainwright. Um, you know, Adam Wainwright, somebody, his ERA is over four, but, but if you look at the peripherals, the, you know, he, he's keeping the ball in the park. Uh, he, he's working, you know, his problem last year was the, the curve was, was working. You know, everything else wasn't uh, really working for him. He wasn't sequencing correctly. Uh, it looks like he's fixed some of that. You know, he, it's funny, he was coming off of an injury in 2015 that wasn't an arm injury, so a lot of people, including me, thought he would be fine. <laughs> you know, and it turned out that he, he wasn't, but, you know, he's kind of recovered to the point now where I'm not expecting him to put up, uh, you know, sub-threes like he did at his peak, uh, but I do expect that ERA to come down somewhat, and I, I do expect him to be a little bit better than, you know, he, he's been year-to-date, just, again, based on some of those secondary numbers. Mike Gianella's thumbs up, Jorge Bonifacio, Hunter Renfro, David Price, and Adam Wainwright. Let's move over to the thumbs down players, Mike. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be at least cautious. Let's start in the American League again. Who's a hitter that gets the thumbs down? The guy I'm a little bit wary of in the second half is Aaron Judge. Now, Aaron Judge is is a hitter I I was dead wrong about. I, I thought he would struggle based on what he did last year. Uh, he he's cut the strikeouts down considerably. He is going to stick. There, there's no doubt about that. But you know, the thing that jumps out about Judge is you know his home run to fly ball rate is is hovering around forty percent. Uh, we we just know historically that that's not really sustainable. That that's something that that's going to drop. And even if it drops a little bit, uh, you're talking about a hitter in the second half who still going to be a really good hitter, but just just not somebody. You know, looking at some of the, the trade tools over on a site like CBS, you know, I, I've seen people making some really large deals for Judge that I, I just don't feel are warranted based on the true talent, and, and I think people are paying retrospectively for what he's done to date. I remember seeing Aaron Judge at First Pitch Arizona a couple of years ago in the Arizona Fall League, and I thought this guy would be lucky to ever make the major leagues because his swing was so big and looping. I thought anybody who can throw a fastball will stick it by him, but he seems to have some had some really good coaching. But yeah, it seems like a, a little uh, over-exuberant valuation, shall we say, now on Aaron Judge. Uh, how about in the National League, a hitter who gets your thumbs down? Well, I, I kind of hate to say this because I'm a Mets fan, but uh, watching the Mets regularly, uh, Michael Conforto, you know, he's got two problems. One problem he's got is when Ioannis Cespedes comes back, uh, he might be crunch for playing time. I know it sounds stupid because he should be playing over anyone but Cespedes. Uh, but the Mets really sound like they're going to consider going with a rotation. Uh, but the other thing I've noticed with Conforto is hitters have, have kind of found a place to, I'm sorry, pitchers have found a place to exploit him a little bit. And it's, it's up in the zone away. And he's been flail, flailing a little bit at those pitches. You know, he'll adjust, uh, you know, hitters always do, but I, I feel like a lot of the, the pitches he was getting in the zone earlier, some of these fat pitches, when, when pitchers were just looking at him like as not someone to challenge or think about, he's not going to see that quite so much. So he'll recover, 
but there'll be an adjustment period where Conforto just doesn't continue at this pace. So I, I just see some flags with him. I, I think he's fine in the long term, and in the short term, I, I, he's just somebody I you want to watch a little bit. Over to back to the American League, I guess I should say, and a pitcher who gets the thumbs down from Mike Gianella. Well, I hate to say this, Admin Labor, but uh, Dylan Bundy, <laughs> I, I I just don't see how you know a lot of his ERA is, is buoyed by what he did in two or three starts early. I, I just don't see how what he's doing with the velocity down and pitching in that park is is sustainable. Um, you know, he he should be okay, but he's not going to be pitching at an ace level, which is something that the numbers are are saying that he will. And finally, a National League pitcher gets the thumbs down. You know, I know the numbers are, are good on him, and and I know that the like our metric uh, loves him, but I, I just have a hard time believing in Dan Straley long term. Um, the park helps him for sure, and you know the strikeout rates up. But my my big problem with Straley is I, I've just seen him completely lose the plate at times, and just someone I don't want to take a risk on and, and risk damaging my whip. And if you're a league that uses wins or even quality starts. You know, there, there's always that risk that you're not going to get those from Australia. He's four wins. He's on a poor team, and in terms of innings pitched, he he's barely averaging over, or he's averaging about five and a half innings per start. So, just some caution with him. He certainly should be owned, but you know, he's he's someone I've seen people getting really excited about, and I just don't have that level of excitement. Mike Gianella's thumbs down go to Aaron Judge, Michael Conforto, Dylan Bundy, and Dan Straley. Mike, this has been a gas. Uh, tell us, when do you publish at Baseball Prospectus, and when does the podcast come out? I publish on every Tuesday. I have a column that talks about the uh, expert fab bidding in uh, labor and tout wars. Uh, I occasionally publish a, a freestyle article on, on Thursdays. And the podcast is recorded on Tuesday nights and comes out every typically every Wednesday. And uh, is the podcast available through iTunes and the usual channels, or do you have to go to the site? You can go to the site, but the pod, I, the pod is definitely available on iTunes. I think it's available on Stitcher. I know for sure it's available on iTunes, so you can get it there. Uh, I think it's on SoundCloud as well. Uh, iTunes, it's safe to say it's there. And you know, for the other avenues that I talked about, I'd go to the site just to confirm. And that's baseballperspectives.com. Mike Gianella, thanks so much for uh, talking with us. This has been uh, very interesting and very fun, as I expected it would be. We'll have to have you back uh, a little sooner than uh, it took since we started the show. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate it. And again, any, anytime. Glad, glad, to, uh, glad to be on, Patrick. Mike Gianella writes about fantasy baseball for Baseball Prospectus and appears regularly on the Flags Fly Forever podcast. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. The Minor League Minute, Playing Time, Frequent Flyers, Weekend Pitcher Matchups, and Master Notes – all coming up, so stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy, and I'd like to take a minute to explain why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to set you up with great information across all the major fantasy formats, news analysis, prospect coverage, and player performance validation. Here's PD with a look at just a little of what's on BaseballHQ.com right now in playing time today coverage of Corey kluber francisco liriano dustin pedroia pablo sandoval and many more in facts and flukes we look at andrew mccutcheon jeremy hellickson jet bandy and more players and in the bullpen buyer's guide columnist doug dennis looks at the bullpens in pittsburgh detroit atlanta kansas city and san diego and that's just some of the great content at baseballhq.com 
We're adding 30 articles every week to help keep you on top of your game. If you want to invest in your fantasy baseball success, the full year subscription to Baseball HQ is currently $75, which includes all the articles and tools, plus membership in our HQ forums, the message boards where serious fantasy baseball players like you gather to exchange ideas and tips. And if you enter the promo code HQRADIO at checkout, we'll knock a five spot off the price just to thank you for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Come join us at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It's BaseballHQ.com. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading it off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Toronto shortstop prospect Bo Bichette is Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon. The Toronto Blue Jays' Bo Bichette has proven to be one of the better pure hitters in the minors, which shouldn't come as a huge surprise given that his father was four-time All-Star Dante Bichette and his brother Dante Jr. was a first-round pick in 2011. The younger Bichette was a second-round pick in 2016 out of high school in Florida, where he showed a quick right-handed stroke with plus power, a good understanding of the strike zone, and good bat-on-ball skills. There were concerns about Bichette's size, athleticism, and lack of projection, but his hit tool has developed more quickly than anticipated and more than makes up for his average glove. Bichette played shortstop in high school and has split time at short and second base for low A Lansing this year. Long-term, Bichette profiles as an offensive-minded second baseman who should develop average to above power. Bichette started his career well, hitting 427 and 87 rookie league at-bats last year and has been red-hot in 2017, slashing 371 with a 448 on on-base percentage and a 580 slugging percentage, with 17 doubles, 3 home runs, and 5 stolen bases, and 143 at-bats for the Lugnuts. Bo Bichette is still a long ways away from the majors, but prospects who show an early ability to make consistent hard contact tend to move up quickly, and it would not be surprising to see him at high A by midseason. Those in long-term key performance should definitely keep an eye on Dante Bichette's youngest son. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes call-up reports on San Francisco outfielder Austin Slater, Houston right-handers Raymond Goudouin and David Paulino, Tampa right-hander Jose De Leon, Kansas City left-hander Eric Scogland, and many more call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at possible closer changes in Pittsburgh and Miami. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. There's always a lot of closer turnover each year, and 2017 has been no different thanks to injuries, to preseason studs like Aroldis Chapman and Zach Britton, and just general ineffectiveness. Guys like K-Rod, Sam Dyson, Naftali Feliz, etc. So who's next to lose their closer job? It's certainly hard to project injuries, but there's certainly a few closers with shaky skills that could see their way out shortly. And first is AJ Ramos, who is highlighting Greg Pyron's NL East playing time tomorrow column this week on the site. 
Ramos has been the Marlins' closer all season, but he's got a 467 ERA through his first 19 games, and the skills have been just as ugly. Ramos has a 1.8 strikeout-to-walk ratio of 50%, first pitch strike rate, which doesn't bode well for his walk rate, and a 432 expected ERA, all of which are far from closer-worthy skills. Brad Ziegler was thought to be the next guy in line should Ramos fail in Miami, but Ziegler struggled himself with just 12 strikeouts to 11 walks across 21 innings with a 6.65 ERA. So that might all open up a door for David Phelps to squeeze into a closer gig in Miami at some point this summer. Phelps didn't allow an earned run in all of May. He's got more strikeouts than innings pitched, and he's working on a second straight triple-digit base performance value, or BPV. Phelps is the most skilled reliever in the Marlins' pen. And the converted start is leverage index, which is a metric we look at to see which relievers are being used in the highest leverage game situations, is among the best in Miami's bullpen which means manager Don Mattingly would trust Phelps to close out games in the future. Another possible change could be in Pittsburgh, where bullpen maven Doug Dennis recently opined that Tony Watson might be in hot water with a 2.1 command ratio, 59 BPV, and a 476 expected ERA. Behind Watson in Pittsburgh bullpen lies Felipe Rivera, who's a lefty, but so was Watson, so handedness shouldn't be a roadblock for Rivero in his path to a closer role. Rivero owns the highest leverage index in the Pirates' pen behind Watson, and the skills have been excellent. Rivero's got a 28-6 strikeout-to-walk ratio, a 2.69 expected ERA, and a 15% swinging strike rate to pair with his 98-mile-an-hour fastball. So even if Watson stays in the closer role this summer, the Pirates could very well deal him as a lefty trade piece, which would open things up for Rivero. So if you're in holds leagues or speculating for deep league saves, check out David Phelps in Miami and Felipe Rivero in Pittsburgh. Wouldn't be surprised if one of them or even both are closing out games at some point this summer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are two chances, Baltimore catcher Chance Sisko and Yankees starter Chance Adams. And here to tell you more, BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Sometimes in life, just like in fantasy baseball, it makes sense to take chances. This week's edition of Frequent Flyers will attempt to determine if two chances are worth taking in June. Our first Frequent Flyer is 22-year-old Baltimore Orioles catching prospect Chance Sisko, who is currently batting 245 with two home runs for AAA Norfolk. Described by Baseball HQ's 2017 Minor League Baseball Analyst as an advanced hitter who works counts, makes contact with a clean swing path, and hits hard wide drives to all fields, Chancisco also led the AA Eastern League with a 406 on base percentage in 2016. Yet be sure to temper his home run expectations, since Chancisco has never hit more than six home runs in any season since being drafted by the Orioles in the second round of the 2013 Amateur Player Draft. That's why Chancisco, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they're available in your league. 
Then again, our own Jack Thompson in one of his Keepers columns late last September on BaseballHQ.com said, don't be surprised to see Chad Sisko by midseason 2017. And we're not going to bet against Jack's predictions. They usually come true. Plus, with Baltimore catcher Wellington Castillo placed on the disabled list on June 1st with an apparent groin injury, perhaps now is an excellent time to take a chance on Chad Sisko. And while you're at it, be sure to take a chance on Chance Adams, the 22-year-old New York Yankees right-hander who, on May 31st, 2017, fed 12 batters in a triple-A game against the Columbus Clippers. Expected to debut sometime in 2017, it appears that Chance Adams is already pushing the issue. Chance Adams has won seven of his ten starts in 2017 for the AAA Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders, striking out 59 batters in 58 innings pitched and posting a 124 ERA. Plus, his career dominance rate of 10 strikeouts per nine in the minors ranks him among baseball's elite pitchers, according to Baseball HQ's benchmarks, as command ratio of 3.5 strikeouts to walks when used as a leading indicator suggests that he may eventually produce an ERA of under four at the big league level. With the Yankees' starting rotation currently producing a 4.17 ERA through 51 games, maybe Chance Adams could soon be a welcome addition. But as the legendary Joe Garagiola once said, baseball gives you every chance to be great. Then it puts every pressure on you to prove that you haven't got what it takes. It never takes away the chance, and it never eases up on the pressure. And perhaps, along those lines, fantasy baseball never takes away the chance to be great, especially when you consider adding both Chance Sisko and Chance Adams, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky writes regularly at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets to start. Ratings of minus one or worse are strong bets to sit. Between the ones, that's what we call the wild card range. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. With a look at weekend matchups, including Carlos Carrasco and Erasmo Ramirez, here's Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. This weekend, we feature two pitchers with nearly identical recommended start matchup ratings of 142 and 141, respectively. The first is our marquee matchup man, Carlos Carrasco of the Cleveland Indians, and the second is our Sunday surprise, the Seattle Mariners' Ariel Miranda. Carrasco is on the road Saturday, facing the Kansas City Royals and Jason Hamill. Hamill has a matchup rating of minus 157, giving Carrasco a very favorable matchup rating differential of 299. The two American League Central teams are bookends in the division standings, with the Indians tied for the lead and the Royals all alone in last place. Kansas City has by far the worst run production in the American League, averaging 3.4 runs per game while allowing 4.4 runs per game. Cleveland is scoring 4.5 runs per game and allowing 4.1. The Tribe has been better on the road than at home, winning 16 of 26, third best in the American League. The Royals are 500 at home, second to last in the American League. Against right-handers, Cleveland is five games over 500, and Kansas City is four games below 500. Give the edge to the Indians. Like his team, Carlos Carrasco is doing better on the road than at home this season. 
His 10 starts are split evenly, but his lone PQS disaster came at home, where Carrasco also has three PQS dominant outings. On the road, Carrasco has four PQS dominant efforts and no PQS disasters. Overall, Carrasco's PQS dominant to disaster ratio is 70% dominant to 10% disaster. Carrasco has an ERA under 3, a whip under 1, and an opponent's on-base percentage under 300. With a base performance value of 126, Carlos Carrasco is this weekend's marquee matchup man. Six-foot-two-inch Sunday surprise Southpaw Ariel Miranda also enjoys a very favorable matchup rating differential. His mound opponent at Safeco Field in Seattle is the Tampa Bay Rays' Erasmo Ramirez. Ramirez has a matchup rating of minus 3.0. With Miranda's 141, that makes a matchup rating differential of 441. But does Miranda deserve his matchup rating? Let's see. Starting with the two teams, Tampa Bay's OPS on the road is better than Seattle's OPS at home. Tampa Bay has the third-worst record in the American League against left-handers. Seattle is fifth-worst versus right-handers. Against teams at or under 500 like the M's, the Rays are four games over 500. Against teams over 500 like Tampa Bay, Seattle is five games under 500. The Rays get the edge. Ariel Miranda defected from Cuba in 2015 and made his Major League debut 11 months ago. In 2016, he pitched 58 innings and had 10 starts. In 2017, he's pitched 58 innings and 11 starts. Even though the samples are somewhat small, they cover the same number of innings, making it easy to compare results. In 2016, Miranda had three PQS disasters and one PQS dom. In 2017, he has five PQS disasters and three PQS doms. Progress at the dominant end, problems at the disaster end. In 2016, Miranda walked 18 and struck out 40. In 2017, he's walked 23 and struck out 52. Progress with strikeouts, problems with walks. Miranda had some good luck in 2016 and some more good luck in 2017. In 2016, his hit rate was 23% and his strand rate was 75%. In 2017, his hit rate is 27% and his strand rate is 73%. While he's worse in whip now because of the excess walks in this season and the excess hit rate luck last season, Miranda has improved in expected ERA, ground ball, line drive, and fly ball percentages, first pitch strike rate, and swinging strike rate. He's raised his BPV from 56 to 66. To top it off, Miranda's been hot in his four 2017 home starts, logging three PQS doms. We may be a bit surprised by his matchup rating, but the 28-year-old Ariel Miranda seems worthy of his recommended start status. To finish up this weekend, let's scan the 28 wildcard matchup ratings by splitting them into those greater than zero and those zero or below. Nine starters are on the positive side. They are Irvin Santana, Randall Delgado, Mike Leake, Jolice Chassin, Johnny Cueto, Chris Sale, Brad Peacock, Luis Severino, and Julio Tehran. Nineteen are on the negative side. They are Dylan Bundy, Lance McCullers, Jordan Montgomery, Joe Biagini, Joe Ross, Alex Cobb, Edinson Volquez, Scott Feldman, Tyler Chatwood, Matt Garza, Robert Gesellman, Trevor Bauer, Marcus Stroman, Sonny Gray, Tanner Roark, Michael Waka, Tyler Anderson, Kenta Maeda, and Jeremy Hellickson. Here's hoping you come out on the positive side this weekend and this season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick has his weekend matchups report here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. 
Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week I want to talk about, ouch, coping with Major League Baseball's injury plague. It might not be the shot heard round the world, but Mike Trout's wrist injury and trip to the DL is a seismic event in this fantasy baseball season. But really, we can't look at Trout's injury as an earthquake unto itself. If anything, it's just the latest aftershock in what is starting to look like a whole new era of tectonic instability. All right, enough with the geophysics analogies. We've already seen other high-round, high-dollar players hit the DL this season. Hitters like Robinson Cano, Joanna Cespedes, Miguel Cabrera, Josh Donaldson, Trey Turner, and Ian Desmond all on the shelf. Top starting pitchers have included Corey Kluber, Noah Syndergaard, and Madison Bumgarner. And we've lost top closers, including Zach Britton, Juris Familia, Aroldis Chapman, and Roberto Osuna. The number of injuries is growing, and so is the number of player days lost. And the net effect for fantasy players is to confound our best attempts to value players and build rosters, especially in single-league formats. We need to figure out some ways to fix our game before it becomes a game of trying to outguess the grim trainer. There has been a little disagreement about the scope of the injury situation, so I went and tried to figure out if there actually are more injuries, or if it just seems that way because of recency bias and what behavioral economists call the availability bias. When asked to say what's going on in the sport this year, the many injuries make the story jump to the top of people's minds. Curious about this, I went to SpotTrack.com and got injury data for all of 2016 and 2017 through May 29th. And as it turns out, there actually are more injuries than last year, and more days being lost to injuries. First, let me acknowledge it's difficult to compare a part season with a full season when we're looking at how many player days are being lost to the 60-day DL. Most such stints this season aren't over yet, so we don't know how long they'll be. And looking at last season's 60-day DLs, it's easy to see that we don't know the length of any 60-day stint that was interrupted by the end of the season. This particular examination also excludes three or four DL stints that SpotTrack.com classified as, and I quote, injured reserve, which isn't a term used in any of the baseball rules I've reviewed. Also, we're not including bereavement or paternity leave. Becoming a dad is not an injury, although sometimes it can feel that way like when your little girl gets her driver's license. So when we talk about days lost in this Master Notes, we'll be looking only at the 10-day list this year and the 15-day last year. Any 10-day DL stints that started after May 20th of this season are assumed to be going only the minimum. It's probably not exactly right, but what are you going to do? Baseball is losing more games to the DL. That's the headline. And it starts with the number of DL stints. So far this year, we've seen 31 10-day DL stints per 100 total games played, more than double last year's rate of 15 DL stints per 100 games played. Some analysts have pointed out that the shorter minimum itself might be causing at least part of the gain because teams are more willing to let a guy rest a lesser injury if they know he can come back five days sooner. But as it turns out, only about 9% of the 10-day DL so far have seen the player actually return in the minimum fewer than missed the 15-day minimum last season, which was about 15%. In fact, the number that appears most often for length of stay on the 10-day DL is 15 days. Also, the average total DL days lost is rising. 
The average 10-day stay so far in 2017 has been just over 23 days, and that is shorter than the 36-day average stay on the 15-day DL last year. But because there have been so many more 10-day stints, the total days lost per 100 games has risen sharply to 7.1 DL days per 100 games played, 27% higher than last year's 5.6. And while I didn't count the 60-day DL stints for reasons cited earlier, at least as far as the days is concerned, I did notice that 60-day stints are also soaring in 2017. We've had 71 60-day DL stints already this season, 32% higher than the 2016 rate. If the number of 60-day DLings continues, there will be more than 225 in the full 2017 season. That's almost one-third of all the players. So, what are you going to do? At least directly, not too much. Let's face it, if you lose a Mike Trout or a Madison Bumgarner to injury, there's not really much you can do, especially in AL or NL-only formats. In Tout AL, for example... Trout's owner was able to activate a replacement outfielder from his reserve, but had he not had a player standing by, the best outfield free agent in the pool was Mikey Mattock, which is like replacing your Lamborghini with, well, my car. Some fantasy people say coping with injuries is all part of the game, and I agree, but I don't think it has to be quite so dire as it is now. Fantasy leagues need to start considering rules changes, especially changing rosters to fewer hitters and more pitchers. I've discussed this before and I won't go on, but we should be drafting about 75% of all available hitters and 75% of all available pitchers, but in only leagues we're taking 90% plus of the hitters and only 55% of the pitchers, and that's not counting reserve players. And speaking of which, let's get rid of reserve lists, again especially in only leagues. If the owners in an only league take just one active hitter apiece on reserve, there will be no hitters left, literally zero. The only replacement owners will have for hurt players will be the AAA bench enders called up to fill roster slots. Not that much fun. Finally, if your league has weekly transactions, let teams respond immediately to DL situations. If I have an available reserve list player or somebody coming off the DL who could step in for my latest guy going on the DL, why not? The DL system in baseball is rapidly becoming a revolving door. Let's not jam a wedge under it. Finally, there's also the school of thought that says smart owners should adjust their projections and valuations to account for the injury risk. To that, I say, and I might have the spelling wrong on that. In his five previous full-time seasons, do you know how many DL stints Mike Trout had? Zero. He averaged 154 games played per season. Anyone who paid top dollar for Mike Trout did factor in his injury risk, or more accurately, factored in Trout's lack of injury risk, only to be shut down. Similarly, in his six previous seasons, Madison Bumgarner averaged 32 starts and 213 innings per season. It seems a little like piling insult onto injury to suggest Bumgarner bidders should have knocked a buck or two off because of the risk of dirt bike injury. I've had some other ideas for coping with growth in the disabled list. First, be a regular reader of The Big Hurt, Matthew Cedarholm's injury coverage at BaseballHQ.com. It includes a description of every injury, its 2017 impact, and the player's estimated return date. I know I'm a homer on this, but it's a really good resource. Second, let's try to get someone to outlaw head-first sliding. 
Trout hurt his wrist slamming into second on a stolen base attempt. A little earlier, we heard about Eduardo Nunez in San Francisco getting a possible concussion sliding headfirst into home. These kind of injuries happen a lot, and no wonder. Hands and wrists are small. They're just not designed to absorb that much force. Neither are heads. Legs are much better adapted because of their big muscles to absorbing the energy of a sliding player. So send candygrams to Rob Manfred and the owner and GM of your local team. Maybe write to your senator, U.S. representative, if you know who that is, or Canadian member of parliament, ditto. And remember, include a campaign donation. It'll help you get heard. Finally, figure out ways to exploit the DL. Many fantasy owners don't think through the entire value proposition of an injured player. Thinking again about Mike Trout, if he misses the full eight weeks they say is the maximum, he'll come back with about 10 weeks left to go. That's about 60 games, and Mike Trout could rack up $15 worth of value in those 60 games played. So you might catch some lightning in a bottle if you trade a second or third level guy who's playing for a Mike Trout who currently isn't. As well, get more into prospects, even if your league doesn't use them. Knowing who is playing well in AAA and could be next in line for an injured player might let you grab a useful call-up. These are just some ideas, but we got to do something because the DL situation is not likely to improve, so it seems inevitable that fantasy baseball and its players must develop ways to manage. We should start by expecting more DL stints and the resulting increase in lost playing time. And unfortunately, we have to be increasingly pessimistic about any player's perceived invulnerability. The grim trainer sooner or later comes for them all. And oh, by the way, in the three days since I started researching this edition of Master Notes, the disabled list has claimed Adam Liberatore, Robbie Ross, Justin Nicolino, Lonnie Chisenhall, Paulo Orlando, Cameron Mabin, Vince Velasquez, Matt Andres, Wellington Castillo, Danny Duffy, Dustin Pedroia, Chris Stewart, Adam Ottavino, Peter Borjos, and Joe Musgrove. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 2nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 21 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus and the Flags Fly Forever podcast. Mike was just terrific appearing here on Baseball HQ Radio for the first time, and I certainly hope not the last. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch reporter this week doing double duty was Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in touch with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, almost a thousand followers. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. 
More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature guest expert will be Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and a regular guest here at Baseball HQ Radio. That's Todd Zola on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.